The Way Out Podcast, episode 345. What is your name? Skip Sams. Skip, what was your substance of choice or DOC if you had one? Uh, what took me to my knees was crystal meth. Mm-hmm. Before that, alcohol, pot, cocaine. But actually, I thought crystal meth was my cure for alcoholism because once I did crystal meth, I did not want alcohol. I did not want pot. I just wanted crystal meth. So that's what brought me to my knees. Oh, man, I can so relate with the addiction switching. Yeah. Throughout my career of alcoholism and addiction and trying to find the sweet spot within a particular substance or behavior or mix of substances or mix of substances and behaviors and you just said something else sweet yeah because i still today have the disease of addiction and today you know the the drug and alcohol has been arrested but sugar i really have to watch sugar today you oh, know, 100%. It, it, al- uh, addiction shows up in so many oh. different ways that if I'm not working my program, uh, it will, you know, it all gets out of control. A hundred percent. That's been my experience as well, is that if it feels good, I'm... Do it. <laughs> yeah, dude. I'm and more until it doesn't feel good no... and do it anyway. <laughs> in this... I don't, I don't care. It could be exercise. It could be uh, food. It could be whatever. Uh, if, yep. if if it feels good. Sex, Netflix. Sex, absolutely. Yep. yep. No doubt about it. And I have to watch that too. And it's a process. Mm-hmm. It's not perfect. When I identify behaviors or substances or anything that I am abusing and using in order to change my feelings on a regular basis. And that starts to interfere with my ability to function. Yeah. Then I need to address it. I know I'm not going to be addiction free per se in my life. Like I am an addict. That is just who I am at my core. And the reality is is that there's going to be certain counterproductive thought and behavior patterns there's going to be certain addictions if you will uh, that exact a cost uh, that i that i might continue into recovery and i know when it's time to put it down i know when it's time that you know it's crossed that proverbial line nicotine was that into recovery yeah Yep. I had to put it down. It, it was it was controlling my life. Yeah, I was up to two packs a day, <laughs> and uh, I I gained so much weight, and I was uh, like 230 pounds, and smoking two packs a day, and I'd walk up a flight of steps and just yeah. hacking like crazy. Yeah. There's a love. Actually, I was talking with someone uh, just a bit ago uh, at breakfast about she's trying to quit smoking. And we, you know, I talked uh, with her about that. And then the process of quitting smoking um, 
And you know, it's a lot of it has to do with whatever it is. A lot of it has to do with the change of the frame of mind and whatever tools of recovery, you know, for me, it's the 12 steps. That's where it started. And, and there's stuff after that, that I've, I've added to that, but it's the change of the frame of mind. And one of the things that we, uh, that came up about the cigarette smoking, she's like, how did you quit? And I was like, well, I had to change. I had to stop saying I'm going to quit. And I had to put it with something that didn't even a thought, a mantra that didn't even include the word smoking. Mm -hmm. Because if I keep saying I got to quit smoking, the brain doesn't hear the word quit. The brain hears smoking mm -hmm. and it just affirms that. And if I say, if I'm pulling a cigarette to my mouth and I keep saying, I'm going to quit smoking, I still am giving myself permission to put that cigarette in my mouth. Absolutely. And if I change the thought, my mantra was, I only inhale clean air. Mm. And once I did that, I only inhale clean air. Putting the cigarette to my mouth, I have no, I, I'm stopping the permission. I have no permission to put that in my mouth and, uh, and to inhale it. And, um, you know, that was 11 months after I got clean. Um, and by that time, I also had a lot of tools of, you know, staying off crystal meth. Right. So I was able to um, put all those to use as well as for cigarettes. I love a couple of things that you invoked there. Number one. I too have the 12 steps at the center of my recovery, but I have an and program. Yeah. <laughs> and I've added things into my recovery that have helped a great deal in mindfulness and meditation mm -hmm. and some DBT practices and some cognitive behavioral therapy practices so i continue to work to have an open mind and look for ways that i can continue to evolve my recovery and to your point i too smoked and then vaped and vaped took it to a ridiculous level into recovery and I had to make the decision that I didn't want to be a smoker anymore. And so to your point, it wasn't about quitting smoking or quitting nicotine. It was, I don't want to be dependent on nicotine anymore. I don't want to be a smoker mm -hmm. anymore. That's not who yeah. I want to be. Yeah. And if I have one, if I have one, I know I will become a daily smoker again. That's just the way it is. That's so funny you say that because last night and that what came up with um, also in the conversation with my friend about her quitting smoking was I had, I was at Walgreens last night checking out and I looked and I saw the cigarettes and I'm like, I'm going to buy a pack and just have one. I'm yeah. like, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> that was 16, you know, I've, it's 16 years since I've had a cigarette. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, and I'm 100%. Like, where did that come from? And I'm like, nope. That's it. I have to I, tell myself, it's not if, it's I will become I will. at some point a daily smoker. It will it's, just happen. 
Oh no, it's like it's a fifteen. The first thing I thought was skip. That's fifteen dollars a day. I, I didn't even think about it's going to take a while to get to that. I just <laughs> immediately like knew I'm going to be a. It's going to be a pack a day. Hundred percent. I yeah. love it. Okay, <laughs> you, you brother from another mother, Skip. Skip, <laughs> what is your clean and or sober date if you keep one? Four twenty. 2006. Yeah, I'm serious. 420, 2006. <laughs> That's a great sober day. Yeah. Was that intentional? No. Nope. But it was because I smoked a joint on the 19th. Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's tremendous. Absolutely tremendous. So 420, that's substantial long-term recovery. Congratulations. Thank you. It's, it's weird to hear somebody referring to my recovery as long-term recovery yeah why yeah um because it's a miracle um you know and people say congratulations and you know i th and you should be proud of yourself that's the one that that i hesitate on mm. because as soon as i allow pride into my recovery, then my ego takes over and it's me. And I had to surrender my ego. My, I interchanged the word ego and addict because they both want control. They both, you know, it's it's the same thing to me. Yeah. And um, I, I cannot control. Um, if I put one, you know, just 100%. like we were talking about cigarettes, if I do one hit of of crystal meth, it's not going to be too long before I'm using it uh, intravenously. And, you know, it, but it's, it's not, so I will, I will take a congratulations just as uh, it's, it's, it's kind of like an accepting an award. Um, what, but what really what really drives my recovery is not pride, but gratitude. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm grateful for this time. And if somebody says congratulations, it's like, thank you. I am grateful. And I can relate to that on an intimate level, Skip, because previous relapses for me started with, you've been sober for a long time, Charlie. This is my addict Chuck talking to me. Good job. I knew you could do it. You probably don't need to go to them meetings anymore, though. Mm. You don't need to call your sponsor. You don't need to do this stuff because, I mean, you did this. You, Charlie, did this. So, skip a few meetings. I don't spontaneously combust. I don't go on a giant bender because I'm maintaining some modicum of dry self-control and then the moment strikes where it's right or wrong, whatever it is, I become restless, irritable, and discontent and succumb to relapse or some sort of celebratory moment, whatever it is, and I'm off to the races because I've convinced myself I'm not an addict that all that 
sobriety was of my own making. Wasn't the steps, wasn't my higher power. And it was a result of a lack of humility and a lack of gratitude. Right? Allowing my ego to... (laughs) Right. I find it interesting and I take note of this when people come back in the rooms after a relapse the f- you ask what happened and the first thing they say is I stopped going to meetings almost all the time that's the first thing I hear is I stopped going to meetings and that's a good reminder for me um, it's 17 years I've there have been many days I've wanted to use and that's just going to happen the thing is I have no desire to use because I don't want to go back to I don't want to go back to um, the loneliness to the isolation to the depression to the suicidal tendencies I don't I, I don't want to go back to that so you know when I when I have a thought I want to use I'll go to a meeting I'll use the tools sometimes I'll send a text out to 20 people yeah just to like just to like hold myself accountable and there are times also I think oh I'm too busy to go to a meeting and that's the time that I need to go to more meetings. <laughs> yeah, and what I learned when I was in grad school, I went through this breakup and my eye was just going crazy. That's when I joined Al-Anon. <laughs> um, but I was going crazy, right? It just set off the, the attic. And um, I was working on my master's thesis at the same time. And I learned that I need to go to a meeting a day at least during this time when I'm working on my thesis and doing classes and all that stuff. But that hour is, if I was not going to the meeting that hour, I wouldn't be working on my thesis. I would be obsessing about (laughs) everything else. (laughs) So yes, I can afford an hour and uh, to go to a meeting and put my mind in the right frame of mind in the forward thinking frame of mind in a recovery frame of mind one thing you mentioned which i think is super instructive is the idea of an impulse versus a desire mm-hmm. and i think it's easy to confuse those two things mm-hmm. i'll often have an impulse to do something that's not healthy for me that's not a desire i don't desire to hurt myself i don't desire to relapse i have an impulse from time to time yeah that's not a desire and it's it's how to how to retrain ourselves to take those defects and turn them into um, you know, the positive. So if I have an impulse, um, if I have an impulse to um, to text my ex because I just can't stop texting them, why don't I text my sponsor instead? Mm-hmm. Redirect. Redirect yeah. that energy into a 
productive behavior yeah. versus a counterproductive if behavior. I have an impulse to call my uh, a drug dealer or you know try to find drugs impulse calling someone in recovery and either just tell them or just say hey but let's go for coffee or you know change the impulse to something and that's it it's not like instead of just not because prior to recovery it was all just me trying not to do bad things and nature <laughs> abhors a vacuum and i can only do that for a certain amount of time before i you know succumb to the addiction of the moment but instead of just trying really hard not to do something I can redirect that and do the next right thing. We hear that a lot. Do the yeah. opposite. Yeah. And that's about redirecting that into something positive. And recovery is a lot about that. Absolutely. Skip, how do you serve the recovery community? Um, I do it in the rooms, um, service positions. Even still, I'll do a coffee position once in a while, you know, because that gets me to the meeting, gets me to the meeting on time. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, I also sponsor. I have four sponsees right now. Um, I and that's that's a good amount for me. Um, and and professionally, I've taken it into my professional life as well. I'm a coach for um, musicians and artists in recovery who are reclaiming their creativity without the use of drugs and alcohol. I absolutely love all of that because I have the capacity to walk in late to meetings and having an accountability position yeah. certainly helps that character defect. For sure, <laughs> and keeps me accountable to a meeting. I'm a person that believes having that core home group that you make no matter what is so yep. important. I and schedule so, my appointments around it, schedule everything around it. Yeah, yeah, just really key. Uh, staying in the center of that core home group and prior attempts at recovery, it bounced around and stayed on the edges and never really had a home group and didn't want to because I didn't want to be accountable. I didn't want to be uh known uh, on that level so i love that and helping people lean into their creativity and recovery is just beautiful there are for me i i was uh had a music career um you know i wasn't rich or famous but i i was definitely you know working a working at, musician yes and i had a recording studio downtown in the loop of chicago and um, I had um, a lot of cabaret artists in Chicago. They would come to me and have me produce their albums. Yeah. Um, I had a small label. I had a couple CDs out. You know, I was up and coming. Um, but there was a day and I started Crystal Meth. And like a few months after I started uh, smoking it, it wasn't even a few months. I made the decision one day to close my recording studio so I can become a dealer so I could use full time. And I made that decision to do that. So when I got sober three years later, I couldn't sing, but you know, my, my, the, 
the meth just messed up my brain so much that I couldn't sing. I mean, I had a hard time swallowing a lot of times, let alone trying to make the muscle move to sing. I couldn't play the piano. I'd go to play one chord and I, my hands just couldn't do it. And I was really, I, you know, I just felt like that part of me had died and I was never going to get it back. And um, I was really, you know, I went to a Beck concert once uh, at, soon after I got sober and the better the concert got, the more pissed off I got. And it was anger at myself. And I realized that I'm alive. That part may be gone, but I'm alive and I'm going to have to deal with that. And But I still needed a creative outlet. So I started taking painting classes, stained glass classes um, at the community college. And it was, you know, I already had a, a bachelor's degree, so I wasn't trying to, you know, get grades or anything. But because it was, there, all my work was graded. And I started off like in September with everything was a D. <laughs> some of it was gratuitous Ds, you know, some of the work. Um, by the end of that quarter, you know, I was getting some low Cs. By the end of the second quarter, you know, I, I had actually got a couple of low Bs. And I just noticed throughout that year that my grades were going up. And also during this time, during I loved the still life class because it taught me to meditate. It taught me the how to be present in the moment. Because when you're doing a still life, you are focusing on like every bit of light on that object that you're looking at and trying to, you know, you're just really pinpointing in that. So that was a great benefit of it. But I also noticed that as my grades were getting better, the thought came to me, if I'm doing this new creative thing, something I've never done before. And oh, I had actually sold a painting, which was like, wow. <laughs> You know, um, but if I'm doing this and getting better, you know, I'm still not great, but I'm getting better. Why can't I do that with music? And I came to the understanding that I could, but I had to, I got to, let me, re let me rephrase that. I got to start from the beginning. I had to be willing to start over. Um, and I love this prayer help me to set aside what I think I know mm. so you can teach me what I need to learn and applying that to you know I thought I knew all this stuff about music but actually you know it was all messed up I didn't know what I knew and I couldn't do any of it so I pulled out the grade one piano books and just started with simple tunes like Mary Had a Little Lamb. Yeah. And um, built up, you know, started playing the scales and got the muscles back. And I got to the point after a year of that, that I was able to, I still wasn't able to sing, but I was able to play enough, well enough that I could use it as a composition tool. And I went to grad school for um, scoring film and uh, continued the education that way. 
And, you know, it was this whole process that, <clears throat> one, I had to be willing to let it go. Um, I had to be willing to allow creativity to express itself in a new way and to be humble. I, I mean, I, I wasn't doing it to become great or I was doing it for the sole purpose of allowing creativity to flow through me. And then I, once I learned that, be willing to start from the beginning. And then it's, so my journey over the last uh, 17 years, you know, then I, uh, I went to grad school, I started scoring um, uh, films. I went to New York to study tap dance for a year and a half because I, I did it from the age of five to 15, but I got bullied so much. And then in recovery, I was just like, why can't I do this? I helped start a um, elementary school uh, for the performing arts. Um, I've, you know, I've started producing again for other people. And through this process, I thought I need to share this. I want to share this. I want to help other people go through this process. And so for me, it was like, there was, there was a, also it, it came to the point, this is, I call it making amends with my muse. Right. Because I went through, even through all of this process, I still had to deal with, I'm not worthy of this. Mm -hmm. I'm not worthy of this. Not living up to my full musical potential because I didn't feel worthy. And there was a point where I'm, you know, through the steps, we learned to make amends with our family and our friends and institutions. And I had to make amends with my muse. Um, I thought I had, you know, we say we lost our family, we lost our home. I lost my, I lost my partner. I lost my recording studio. Wait, stop. I did not lose my recording studio. I consciously gave it up. I consciously made the decision to walk away, abandon it. I literally did. I abandoned it. Didn't even get the equipment out so that I could, and so once I made that amends, I realized music did not abandon me. I abandoned music. And it was there waiting for me, just like the family was waiting there for me. Just like, you know, every many people were there waiting for me. Music was there waiting for me. The way you describe your musical journey really parallels a recovery journey. <clears throat> Absolutely. In terms of starting out very simple and starting at the beginning and a lot of self-forgiveness and grace and letting go and learning to live in a different way in recovery very much mirrors this process of your journey back to music, which is a great segue into our last opening question, which is, what does recovery mean to you? Recovery means recovering the person 
that I want to be, that I've always wanted to be. Um, I, it's overused, so I don't like to say it that much anymore, but recovering my authentic self. Um, but taking that a step further and deeper, what does authenticity mean? It means that that person that I've always desired to be, that person that I know I can be, um, recovering that and being that. So it's, you know, recovering, reclaiming my creativity is part of that. The, the steps for me, you know, the first time I work the steps, it's all about the drugs. Right? I'm powerless over alcohol or in drugs um, or addiction, whatever it is. Um, the second time I did them, it was Al-Anon. I'm a powerless over alcohol, but I'm powerless over the alcohol you do. Yeah. Right? There's that perspective. When I do it again, it's like when I work the steps with creativity, listen to this. I am powerless over creativity mm. and that was such an aha moment for me because when we learn let me rephrase that when i learn that i'm powerless over everything what we're powerless over is not always negative and creativity is not negative but i you know just like i needed that outlet with art I'm powerless over that creativity. I have to I have to allow that to come through or else I just do not fulfilled as the person I want to be. Yeah. Um, but then when I went through and I worked the rest of the steps, um, a, a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity so that I can create. Um, and that's where I got through working the steps, making the amends and so forth. I love that. And this idea that we can be powerless over something, but still connect to it. Mm -hmm. I'm powerless over my higher power. <laughs> yes. But I can connect to my higher power. Mm -hmm. I'm powerless over other people. But I can connect to other people. Mm -hmm. And I so connect with the process of reconnecting to my authentic self so that I can connect authentically to my higher power and other people so that I can discover my gifts, talents, and abilities and use them for good mm -hmm. and increasingly become closer to the person I feel called to be that I always, deep down inside, yearned to be. Welcome Way Out faithful and first-timers to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple, to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous, 
online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Listen up, everyone. Certified and professional recovery coaching is now available by going to wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. We want to help you and those you know who want help in building a strong, rewarding, and enduring recovery. Let our recovery experience and training enhance and strengthen your recovery by visiting wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. Finally, a word of caution, this podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and in this edition of The Way Out, I'm honored to bring you my interview with composer, performing artist, and coach for musicians and artists in recovery, and a person in long-term recovery, Skip Sam's. Skip shares his journey to and through recovery to this point with candor and insight that is rooted in humility, self-awareness, spirituality, and healthy doses of humor sprinkled throughout a story that is about Skip coming to grips with his addiction, mental health, sexuality, and ultimately finding and embracing recovery. For Skip, recovery is very much about recovering his spirituality and his creative purpose using his gifts, talents, skills, and abilities, which has now led Skip to live the spiritual axiom that in order to keep what we have in recovery, we have to give it away. Skip now helps others in recovery discover their own creative purpose through his creative purpose project. So listen up. Skip Sam's. Thank you so much, brother, for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here. Thank you. On the Way Out podcast. You are a person in long-term recovery. You are a composer, a performing artist, and a coach for musicians and artists in recovery. And you're here with us. And I couldn't be more grateful for it. We're going to talk a lot about your journey to and through recovery to this point, and we're going to talk even more about the purpose that you have found in recovery, especially helping others lean into their purpose, which is I just I love talking beautiful. about purpose. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Capital P purpose. And small p. I think there's small p purpose, too, by the way. So I want to talk about that, too. Like, we always talk about the capital P purpose, like, you know, right. but there's small p purpose, too, like making coffee. 
right? Yeah. Um, so we can find purpose in both. Before we do any of that, why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself to the Way Out podcast audience, and we'll get started. Well, I'm glad to be here. It's uh, exciting, actually. Um, I am Skip Sams. My clean date is 4-20-2006. I am, as you said, I'm a performer, com uh, composer, and today I get to be a coach for musicians and artists in recovery who are reclaiming their creativity without drugs and alcohol. And that was very much a part of my process the last uh, 17 years. So I love, I'm very passionate about, and my purpose very much is to be able to share that experience uh, in a professional way to help others do that. Whether they're hobbyist or, um, you know, professional road or just figuring it out, um, or they think they're not creative, you know, we're all creative. We all create our own present. We Absolutely. all create our own. So when people tell me they're not creative, I'm like, well, did you make dinner last night? You yeah. created that. <laughs> yeah, for real. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no for real. I, I, I'm, I'm a huge believer in that. Uh, Skip, why don't we talk a little bit about family of origin, foo, and where you grew up, what was family Absolutely. life like? And yeah, and then talk a little bit about your journey to and through recovery. I am the son of a preacher man. And I just I just love phrasing it that way. My mom doesn't really like it, but but it's such a great song. It, it is. It's, it's a great such song. a great song. It's such a great song. Um and I from the age it's from the age of three, I had a platform um to be able to sing in church. You know, I'm the preacher's kid, so yeah. I, I got to, you know, people love yeah. to see me, and and I learned that the first time I sang a solo, you know, and it's like, oh, there's Skip, there's the preacher's son. Um, and that was very much a part of my life, always. And that was singing, singing in church, singing for God, um, and it was all great. Um, when I was about 10 or 11, and I started to realize, wait, there's something different about me. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I started to realize all these other guys are talking about girls, but I'm looking at the guys. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and by the way, yeah. what year around is this? Oh, my God. So this is. This is the mid 70s. Yeah, so that's so, that's that's different than today. Yes, and I mean it's still there's still a lot of crap going on today, but no it's uh, it wasn't until 1975 that the um, medical association took homosexuality off as a mental illness, right out so, of the DSM, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and this was also the time of. Um, Anita Bryant, mm -hmm. who was, uh, she was like a Miss America or something. And her platform after she got out of that was exposing homosexual teachers in public schools because they are recruiting our children. 
And she traveled the country doing that and was trying to, you know, outing public school teachers mm -hmm. and just created this fear. And I think it all started because she lived in Miami and Miami was doing something with housing. It was very progressive uh, for that time. They were doing something about non-discrimination of housing for um, homosexuals or sexual uh, orientation or however they phrased it then. And that's what, that's what ticked her off. That's what sure. started it. Um, a very different time skip in the 70s. Yeah. And so and I, that's important I was, context. I was, so she was on the news every night. So was Harvey Milk. This was the time of Harvey Milk. Harvey Milk was the first public official, out public official elected to a public office. And he was on city council in uh, San Francisco. And the two of them actually had a like this war going on. Sure. And it was on the news, national news, every night. Yeah. And I saw this and um, I realized, I realize this now, I would love to meet Anita Bryant and thank her because she taught me that I was not alone. Mm. And um, so you're having these realizations that you're not into girls like the other boys are in the <laughs> context of this national reckoning mm -hmm. that's starting to happen in the 70s and it must be a difficult thing for anybody that has to come out right even today and that was um i had so i was I was also hearing Anita Bryant saying how it's an abomination of God. Mm. This was also the beginning of, um, yeah. uh, what's his name? Pat Robertson yes. in the 700 Club. Yes. Jerry Falwell. Yes. These TV evangelists who were preaching, you know, it, homosexuality became a huge thing politically at this yeah. time, just as it is today, in my opinion. It's a distraction from what's really going on. Yeah. And um, and that's a whole different subject. <laughs> but it's not at the same time. But there was local news that started to pop up. And I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. And it was pretty progressive at that time because it, too, started um, some non-discrimination housing um, um laws and so forth. And there was a minister, there was a church that started in Columbus for gays and lesbians mm. and transgender people. Mm -hmm. And this was 1979, I think it was, yeah. 1978. Wow. And I called that minister and told her that I wanted to come out of the closet. And how yeah. old were you at this point? I was 12. Okay. Okay. Your parents didn't know. No. Like, obviously, you're just no, sort of no, a preacher no, no, man. No. Right? Yeah. Like. Yeah. And I start, so I started to, you know, this was the time. Well, she told me, don't do that. <laughs> okay. Save, you know, wait until you're 18. Okay. Um, because, and remember, this is the late 70s yeah. again. 
she explained to me what shock treatment was. And that nice. was what they did still at that time, even though it was taken off of the books as not a mental illness. People with uh, people who were homosexual, they gave them shock therapy. Um, they to try gave, to convert them or try to treat them? Treat them. To treat them and convert them. You know, it's yeah, like we talk about conversion therapy today. Well, I did that later, that. but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I didn't. And so that right there was the beginning of, I felt like living the double life. Yeah. And I couldn't talk to anyone about it. Wow. And I started, I needed, so I had this side of me that really wanted to live for God. And then yeah. I had this side of me that was, then I didn't know, call it my authentic self, but it was like, I'm just being me. And I started looking for validation for that in ways that, you know, I just, I found out I was seeking out sex with men. Yeah. And at 12 years old, I carried a lot of guilt about that for many years. Um, my sister, I finally told my sister when I was like 30 and she's like, Skip, you were a kid. Yeah. You know, these, yeah. and um, it's, you know, it's, it's, if I, if we would have been able to talk about it, that's what I, I wish. I don't want to get off on the, on the other subject too much, but if I had a way to talk about it, if I could have talked to my parents about it without the fear of, you know, if it was, if I had someone to talk to about it, I, I wouldn't have needed that validation. And in, in without question. And you, if you didn't feel like you needed to, hide it and conceal it because of public condemnation that public was swirling condemnation. around and uh the religious condemnation yeah yeah so i learned to have i learned at that point to have a double life yeah that's where i learned to be an addict bingo cuz i can relate intimately with the double life yeah, because that's so, the life of uh, that's the life of an addict. And I was praying to God, don't let me be gay. But on the other hand, I was like, I am gay. Yeah. And there was at fourteen, I decided I'm going to become a preacher. And I started adding preaching at 14 and I started like going to youth rallies and so forth. But then I was seeking out uh, early on, I was seeking out sex yeah. and I had that double life. By the time I was 15, 16, I had been, I was so disgusted with myself. I hated my body. I had just allowed it to be abused. And um, I became bulimic. Mm. And that's when my food issues started. Yeah. But that was a way of trying to get control. A hundred percent. Of, you know, I hate my body. I'm going to try to fix it. And control uh, it. And I can't control, control other stuff. Like I can't control my, um, who I'm attracted to. 
Mm-hmm. I can't control that. I can't control these, but I can control my body. Yeah. And so let's abuse it a different way. <laughs> um, so I, I ended up going to Bible college. I was there for a year and a half. Miserable. Um, that's where uh, one of my professors found out that I was gay and uh, put me in conversion therapy. Oh, wow. Told me if I did not do it, um, I would be kicked out of school and he would call my parents. Oh, wow. And um, out me to my parents. And that's what scared me more than being kicked out of school. And my sophomore year, um, a girl that I was dating, actually, when I, we started dating, I told her I was bi, you know. Sure, um, yeah, right. <laughs> she, she told me, it was like, Skip, you need to move to Los Angeles. And I was looking at music schools out there. I was, I was looking at leaving, and she was like, you need to move to Los Angeles so you can come out of the closet. <laughs> and uh, so I moved to Los Angeles, and I Bless started. Bless her heart. Yes. You know, yes. right? Yeah. Yeah. And I started um, music school in, in Los Angeles and this wonderful school where um, my songwriting teacher like wrote music for songs for like Jefferson uh, Airplane and oh, or Jefferson so cool. Starship. That's and, great. you know, my composition teacher wrote the music for Gilligan's Island and oh, Dynasty, cool. you know, so it was a really cool school. Yeah. Um, and I really got to start to be myself there. Um, but it was there that this was 1986. It was there that I learned somebody introduced me to Long Island iced teas and cocaine on the same night. Oh, wow. Um, so that was on. Yeah, that was on. It wasn't even too long after that, that it was like, you know, forget the food issues. I don't know. <laughs> And, you know, it was like, I'm drinking. I don't want to throw up anymore. You know, I want this. <laughs> yeah. And um, was this your first experience with alcohol? I, I, when I was like 12, um, I had a, a, a taste of beer and I did not like it. Uh, I think I had tried wine once and it was okay but it wasn't like you know right i I started smoking when i was i actually started smoking when i was in bible college that was my (laughs) that was the uh that was the thing you know for sure talk about that addiction switching and the you know that kind of stuff no doubt so okay so you find cocaine and alcohol in long island iced teas taste a whole lot different than beer and wine yeah sweet (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. It wasn't too long after that I found margaritas. So, you know, it's along the same line. And then, then it, that was on, you know, that was on. Then it was, um, that, let's see, I was uh, 19. And it wasn't until I was 21 that I smoked pot. Mm-hmm. First time I smoked pot, I got really high. And then I went and threw up because I, I got dizzy. I was oh, wow. really dizzy and I threw up. I threw up. And I lost the high, and I was like, "All right, let's smoke another one." <laughs> I know that sounds like my first cigarette adventure. Yeah, smoke 
a cigarette, dizzy, feel like I'm going to vomit, pretty yeah. sure I turned green. And soon as I felt a little bit better, I was ready for another cigarette. Another, <laughs> another one, yep, yep. Okay, so you're kind of off to the races at this point, yes? Yeah, yes, yeah. What happens Alcohol. next? Um, what happened next? I was in and out of school. I went to like, I was in and out of colleges, different colleges. Um, Suffice to say, partying starting to take the front seat here. The, the partying was starting to take the front seat. Yes. Um, and God, that was so long ago. I'm trying to think back. Did you come but, out? Are you, are you out at this time? Oh, yes, yes. I, I came. So when I was 19, the end of that year, um, I came out to my parents on the phone. I was so depressed, right? Because I was um, I was still in the closet. I was trying to hide all that, even though I was, I was out in L.A. living my life. Yeah. There was still the trying to reconcile well i'm not singing for church anymore right you know there was that there was that point where i had to make the decision of what when i left bible college it was like do i do i continue to pray to god don't let me be gay or do i accept who i really yeah. am and i accepted who i was really am and this actually i'm glad you brought me back to this because this is really important part of my story i made the conscious decision to not follow that god anymore i still dabbled i'd still like try to find churches that were somewhat accepting or whatever which they did not exist back yeah. then but i went through a period of grief sure and I went through a period of like, now I'm learning all this music in a very fine way from all these people in a way that I really love, but what's the purpose? Because I'm not doing it for God anymore. And so you were in this very real space and time where you had to make a conscious decision that in order to accept yourself, you had to abandon from a practical standpoint, for sure, God. Yes, God, as you knew God, that today I call the the God of my misunderstanding. Sure, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Because I my understanding was God loves you, but you're going to hell, right? And that's that was the big misunderstanding that I had to let go of. It was just right. too conflicting. Right, right. But at that time, certainly, it was this crossroads, this fork in the road that if I'm going to Except myself, I have to walk away from this God that I've known all my life. Yeah, which also meant being in conflict with um, not only everything that I ever learned, but now I'm in conflict with my parents. Yeah, I'm I'm in conflict with their beliefs. Um, so I got really depressed, and I was told by a psychiatrist that I needed medication, and um they were because i was on their insurance or like if if you need medication you know they knew that i need medication i was on their insurance then you need to tell us what's really going on and um so i told them i told them on the phone and they said well you're coming back to ohio and um 
if you don't, you you don't have to, but you're gonna you're gonna learn what it's like to live on the streets. I think they were angry at that time. They you know yeah. Um, and the th- I remember that because I looking back, but it feels like they I were maybe saying if you're gonna make this lifestyle choice, you're, you're on, your do own it on your own kind of deal, right? Yeah, yeah. And at that point in my life, I was. Um, I was so taken care of. I had no, it wasn't even in my consciousness that I could provide for myself. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, right. I, I've, I always had people taking care of me, you know, yeah. that's the other thing about an addict is from an early age, everything I I'm in, there's so much entitlement with <laughs> the addict frame of mind. I don't care who you are, what your background is, what your socioeconomic situation is, there is the sense of entitlement that we have as addicts. Um, So I went back to Ohio. They wanted to, they told me we were going to do family therapy. I went back to Ohio and two weeks later, I found my first boyfriend. (laughs) Oh, really? Uh, Yeah. There was no, there was no family therapy. And I, (laughs) Um, I, I, I stayed back in Ohio for a couple of years. Um, and that there was, and then became another aspect of addiction and that is unhealthy relationships, mm-hmm. an mm-hmm. unhealthy relationship. Yeah. Oh, yes. That is real. That is absolutely real. And becoming uh, addicted to yes. the person becoming addicted to, um, Becoming addicted to, you know, I didn't feel worthy at this point. You got to, yeah. you know, I didn't feel right. worthy. I I had abandoned uh, my religion. Yep. I, you know, my purpose for music, I, I didn't understand what it was. I didn't feel worthy of anything. So, of course, I'm going to pick someone who treats me like shit. Yeah. I, too, I made an active choice to walk away from the God of, to use your term of phrase, misunderstanding, because my mom died when I was 11 and I didn't want any part of a God that would take my mom away. I remember distinctly being at the funeral and somebody coming up to me and saying, I guess God saw fit to take your mom early. And I'm like, what kind of bullshit is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Took her early. I want no part of a God that does that. Yeah, that is all sorts of bullshit. I'm good. I'm out. I'm out. At this yeah. point, I'm officially out. I don't need this God in my life. Uh, and, you know, packed out a lot of other reasons down the line through my active addiction, why God was not a great thing mm-hmm. to have in my life. All the while having this giant spiritual void. In, Absolutely. Right. That's, <laughs> like, yeah. You know. And I sort of cloaked it and dressed it all up in agnosticism. Yeah. No, it was resentment, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, when the one thing and working my relationship with my family and the religion of my origin is, you know, I, who I, came out as um, and showing my true self was in direct conflict with 
every belief my parents had known. Yeah. And so they were now in a position of, we love our son. But it's everything. This is like against everything we've taught. Right. So they had their journey. Yeah. Right. That's that. That's part of their journey, and so I I respect that. I respect their their beliefs. Um, I don't really know. We've never really. I don't know if they think I'm going to hell or not. They've never really said. They just treat me like their son and they love me. And yeah. they, um, you know, there was a lot of working through it. And I know that today I'm loved. Yeah. And, um, but it was, it was, it was a process for them too. And I, I'm sure it still is. Um, Cause it's still a process for me. I'm discovering all the time about um, and realizing through my recovery and my step works, like you were talking about that spiritual void and I had that spiritual void in in my life and the spiritual void that, and it showed up like, I'm not worthy of this music. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It showed up in toxic relationships as you were talking about. So talk about how this manifests throughout your adulthood here in terms of, you know, now not having an active relationship with God or a higher power and, um, trying to navigate life as an out gay man and how does addiction and alcoholism manifest and what happens through this time? I would go through looking back I, I had these cycles and it was just kept repeating over and over and I would hit these, I would hit these little bottoms and I would climb out and I would start to climb up above and then it I'm not worthy. Mm. And I would rapidly go back down to, you know, back into that ditch or dig another hole to the point where it was like, oh, I'm tired of this. I'm better than this. And I would start to climb out yeah. and I would get above ground and I would start to take the ladder and get, you know, get some success and I'm not worthy. And I would, you know, jump back down into that hole. And there was just that cycle and the drugs would change, you know, I mean, one of the way the first 10 years was, okay, how am I going to climb out? I'm going to go to school. You know, I would change a different school. I, for, I finally got my bachelor's degree. It took 12 years and seven schools, <laughs> but I did it. Um, and, uh, takes yeah. what it takes. Skip. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, then I moved to Chicago. Well, I, I got my, I, you know, I even, I had some really good success my last years and my last two years in LA. Cause I was going back and forth from Ohio to Los Angeles too. Oh, okay. It was, yeah. it was just back and forth. Sure. And uh, I had some really good success when I, when um, I had, a, I wrote a musical, it was produced out in Los Angeles and I decided to uh, move to Chicago for a boy. <laughs> and, um, we had a long distance thing. Five days after I got here, he's yelling in my face. You're driving me crazy. So I, 
<laughs> but I, here I am in Chicago, and I, I went to work. I, I, I got a job at a piano bar. Um, I would run back and forth between the bar and playing the piano. That was kind of fun. That's cool. Um, then I met my partner of many years, um, and that was the first. Uh, I mean, we definitely had our 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 not so healthy moments, but that was the first healthy, reciprocated love, taking care of each other relationship mm -hmm. I had. Mm -hmm. um, looking back, the man was a saint because he was taking care of a me a lot more because I yeah. I started to really fall again into drinking and cocaine and you know in some ways i think he enabled me um but that's when i also i was starting my music studio and i was building building up building up building up and it sounds like maybe these cycles are deepening maybe too as you progress is that a fair way to characterize oh yeah because the last the the last one we were we were together like seven years and um i started i started to uh go outside of the relationship for entertainment we'll put mm -hmm. it that way mm -hmm. and i've i found crystal meth that way um sure. In Chicago, I had done crystal meth in Los Angeles. Um, that was just, you know, every once in a while, but somebody showed me how to smoke it. And uh, that was it that uh, here in Chicago. Um, and Mike and I, you know, we drank together. He knew I smoked pot. He knew I did cocaine. You know, I never hid any of that crystal meth I hid from him. Yeah. And um, that was when he found that out. Um, that was like the beginning of the end. That time <laughs> <laughs> for our relationship, right? Um, but that's that's the time. It wasn't soon after I started smoking it that, as I told you before, right. I made the conscious decision to close my recording studio. The success that I had built up over the seven years, I was only I was only at that bar for one year, and then I started my music career in Chicago and built it up. And soon after I started smoking it, I was like, I'm, I'm doing this full time. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. And I did it for three years, and that hole just kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And... Um, the more lonely I got, um, I, I became, um, during that time, I was hanging around, uh, this is a hard story to tell, I don't know if I'm going to tell it. During this time, I um, became infected with HIV, and that was looking back on it, it was because I was high, I was making poor decisions of who I was hanging out with people that um, let's just say I was high. So I was making poor decisions and not thinking through clearly. So I was infected with HIV. I became so depressed and this was 19 or no, this was 2004. So it wasn't a point where, um, it wasn't a death sentence anymore. Right. But it, but it felt like it. I it bet. felt like it. I and 
I remember one day the sun was shining in my apartment. It was so bright. But I, it was the darkest day. It was the darkest day. I, I just could not imagine anybody feeling lonelier than me. Yeah. And if they did, you know, I just, I just could not imagine that at all. And um, I was 39, and there was a, a day that I, I had come, I, I say come to, because I don't know if I was awake or up on, you know, when I was doing crystal meth, I slept one night a week. Wow. And that was it, you know. Um, I slept on Sunday nights. I would go home to Mike's and he would feed me. And then uh, we'd go to bed. I would sleep there and uh, I'd sleep all day Monday and I'd get up before he would get home from work and I would just go out again and I'd come home the next the next week. But so this one morning I, I came to and I thought, you're 39. Today is the day the pain ends. Mm. Just go and jump in front of the L. And you've messed up the last 20 years of your life. Every opportunity that life has given you, you have sabotaged. You have no future. Just go do it. And there was that moment. Today, I know it was the gift of desperation. G-O-D, um, that the math, somehow my brain was able to do some math and I was thinking, well, wait, if you're, if you're 40, almost 40, and you messed up the last 20 years, what if you do something for the next 20 years? And then you'll only be 60. And wow, and then you can live 20 more years. Wow, Skip, you could live to be 80. That had never dawned on me. I never saw my life past 40. And he's like, you can live to be 80. And the thought that changed was, your life doesn't have to be over, it could be half over. And as a lyricist, that stuck in my head, right? That's how. That's why people are like, how can you remember that thought? That's why, because it's so lyrical. Your life doesn't have to be over. It could be half over. And that's when I, I got on the train and I went and uh, got help. And I had gone to rehab before. Uh, when Mike and I, when he said he wanted to break up, I went to rehab. I left because he didn't want to go to family therapy. And I'm like, well, then why am I here? This time I went because I wanted to live. This time I went for me. Um, And I I had been in and out of 12-step rooms since I was 21, because I knew I had a problem. You know, those times I was climbing out, I knew there was a solution there. But I would get to that third step, I would see that third step, and we turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. And I'm like, nope. I'm out. Thank you very much. I don't need that. I know what that's like. It doesn't work. This time when I got to rehab, I mean, I was, I was so broken. Um, 
And somehow I had, I mean, I was so broken that I had the gift of the open mind. I call that goo. Yeah, I love right? that. Gift of open mind. It's like our brain is just goo, but it's ready to be formed, right? And I, I was on the airplane going to rehab. Um, and they came by with the, with the alcohol cart. I, it's, somebody pointed out, it's funny you always say the alcohol cart, Skip. It's the beverage cart. <laughs> <laughs> and they were they were like do you do you do you want a drink and i thought you know i could have i could have one this was 420 2006 and somehow this thought came into my mind was you woke up today sober you're on a plane you're going to get help just do what they stay sober today get there and do what they say for 28 days. I swear to God, this was my thought process. It was like, do what they say for 28 days. And if it, if you don't like it and it doesn't work, at least you had a really nice, good vacation in Southern California. <laughs> yeah. So when I get, you know, that's how I know I had the open mind. Cause when I got to the rehab center, I looked on the wall and I saw the 12 steps and I'm looking at them and I see that third step. We turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him italicized and underlined right. like hey people look at this part. <laughs> I this know, is but we... really important 100 but prior to that moment you were stopping at god yeah and it just dawned on me it's like okay well i never understood how this god spirit or whatever it was could be like a man like or have any gender or just like, I just never understood that. Like if it's a man, where'd he come from? Right. Yeah. That was my, right. yeah. Totally. So I, I was like, well, I don't need to understand that. I don't need to understand that right now. And so in my mind, right then and there, I changed it to, I turned my will, my life over to the care of God as I will understand God. And just to let it be that for that moment. You know, I look back at all this, and these are such little, tiny adjustments and thoughts, and they're miracles. But it's as we were talking in the intro about the changing of the thought with the cigarette. It's, it's these little changes of perception, these little changes of, pers of perspective that allow new thoughts allow the allow the recovery to come in because these are all the thoughts that stopped the recovery i'm not worthy i know who god is right i and allowing allowing these little thoughts makes big changes is the start of big changes absolutely and i can intimately relate skip with that gift of desperation i also received that under the full weight of the consequences that i had brought upon myself and in that moment i was able to fully reckon with this is my doing 
everything I've done up to this point was born out of my best thinking and my best designs. And it got me here in a treatment counselor's office on the back end of a third failed marriage. And I don't ever want to feel like I'm feeling right now ever again. And I'll do whatever you ask of me. So I don't have to feel like this ever again, because I wish that on no human being, except for the fact that it gave me the willingness and the open mindedness to run the experiment. And I listened to a lot of Joe and Charlie in the beginning. After my experience in the treatment counselor's office, I just started doing that next right thing and really dove headlong into whatever folks recommended. And Joe and Charlie, I always say it took Bill and Bob to write the big book and Joe and Charlie to explain it. They just kept saying, run the experiment. If you don't like the results, we'll happily refund your misery. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I set aside my prejudice that I had at previous attempts at recovery. I too had previous stints as early as age 16 in treatment and in the rooms. And you said something really, really important that was also my experience, that you essentially set a preconceived notion of God completely aside. And I did the same thing when I hit that step through step, when I hit steps two and three, which was, if it's something that I can make up in my own mind, it ain't big enough for me. Right? Right? It's just not big enough for me. I'm not going to make something up in my head that's going to save me from my addiction. That's ridiculous in my own mind. That's So I'm going to wipe the slate clean and just start praying to a God that I don't understand, that I have zero concept of. But I had to have that willingness to wipe that slate clean and run that experiment. And I began to have an experience of God when I prayed to literally nothing. I called it God because I had no better name for this mm-hmm. power. And praying to this power that I had no understanding of, that I had no concept of, started to change me in profound ways that started to inform my experience and ultimately understanding of this higher power that is still revealing itself to me. Eight plus years later. Mm. My first, uh, I think my, my first adaptation of God was, um, the rooms. Mm -hmm. And now I call it the group of druggies. Yes. Right. G O D druggies in recovery. Um, But there is something about putting a group of powerless addicts together that becomes empowering. And there's when I when I visualize it like we're there in a circle and this power mystically, magically, miraculously, what you know, metaphysically, whatever it is, 
this power starts to go through us and through that circle and it is including me and i'm now included and i am worthy of being there because i have a desire to stop using and i've always felt excluded mm. and now i'm included mm. and that was just very powerful yeah. that's why today you know we uh, when i when i get confused on some of the different spiritual paths i look at and you know the some of the different experimentations i've had with spirituality and you know some of them sometimes conflict and i get confused it's like just go to a meeting because that's the basis of it all yeah. right yeah and in the 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 great thing about god in the rooms is that it's just a word that we all use to have some kind of relation of understanding and just as we are anonymous our god is anonymous in the rooms that's why we don't talk about religion that's why we you know we don't compare our beliefs about you know heaven hell agnosticism atheism you know what it's it doesn't that's not the purpose of us being there that's why there's religion that's why there's churches and synagogues and mosques and and temples this is our purpose there is to help each other stay clean period that is empowering that and our 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 way is written out in the steps which were so um you know given through uh bill w and you know such a wonderful way that it was a spiritual download for him you know um but the steps the first step is we are powerless the empowerment starts at step two i didn't come in the rooms to stay powerless i came in the rooms to be empowered so people who have a problem with i am powerless it's like hey you know what surrender surrender some more don't even understand what you mean you're powerless just get on the step two and start working the rest of it mm. and the rest of it will be revealed indeed it will and skip I too found my higher power in the rooms. It was very much one of the first real understandings of how my higher power communicates with me and how I hear my higher powers through other people. And I saw people who had thought like I thought, used and drank like I used and drank, did what I did and they got better. And they had what I wanted, and I started doing what they did. So tell me about that process and your recovery and what that has led to for you. That first year of recovery, I it's it's just I it's amazing. <laughs> I look back and I'm like, how did this happen? 
but I picked up the phone list. I called people. Um, I went out to fellowship and got to know people. Um, not, you know, I didn't hang out with people all the time, but you know, I did the, the little things. I learned gratitude list. This was a big game changer for me. Why I took that suggestion, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, I started to meditate five seconds, then 10 seconds. I had a, I had a kitchen timer. Yeah. And I would add and to the point where, you know, because it, it's like trying to understand what is meditation. I've learned today that, you know, th then it was like, get quiet. You know, turn off the noise and just learn to, or don't turn off the noise, but be able to sit with it. Um, and, but now I realize there are so many different forms of meditation, but I, I, I did those things. Um, I will say, um, I took me many months to, uh, to find a, a sponsor. I let the group be my sponsor for a while. Uh, until I found a sponsor I could trust because when I, and I'll tell you why it was, I had trust issues because I moved to a smaller town in Illinois I left Chicago. Um, cause I, you know, my income, my lifestyle, everything was tied yeah, up right. in, in <laughs> using. It was not, so I had, it was not Chicago appropriate. <laughs> no. So I had to leave and I moved to a smaller town. This was 2006. So even even then, 17 years ago, there was still there's still a lot of stigma about being HIV, but um, it was even more so then. Yeah. And I'm in a small town, and I went to a, I went to I went to a fellowship, I went to a meeting, and they were just looking at me like, "Who is this man, this crystal meth addict, talking about you know his HIV, whatever?" And I just like shut down. Um, I found a different meeting um, that I knew would probably be fit more along who I was, but I was still very, very, um, what's the word? Sheltered, not sheltered. Yeah, I was like the turtle in the shell, you know, yeah. I, very self-protective. Yeah about who I let in and what I know. And it was, it took a, a while for me to first let people know I was gay. And um, yeah, that was also the time that I, you know, I, I tried to pick up music and it wasn't there. Yeah. So that first year of recovery is when I went to the school for art classes that became very much part of my reconnection with a higher power. Yeah. That creativity, yeah. you know, that muse, I told you earlier, it's yeah. making, it ends with the muse. Yeah. I was reconnecting with, I was recovering my true self, yeah. not in the way that I expected or that I wanted originally, but it came through the form of art and creativity. I learned 
meditation through that creativity through the art of like sitting still and being quiet and focusing on something other than myself yeah um and that journey of reclaiming my creativity was reclaiming that which i lost when i left church because my creativity was always tied to god and i never felt worthy that's where i would go up and down up and down and get something in success now i had a clean slate with god i had a blank canvas so to speak and i was able to take this creativity and apply it to i'm i'm coming to uh, this hole that had been there um i was able to start to fill it again mm. um and as i was able to start to fill it again i started to fill um fill it with creativity and it's like this is who i'm supposed to be this is who I'm supposed to be. And through that, I found my way back to music. I found my way to climbing out again once using education. Yeah. But this time, you know, I, I saw it through. I didn't jump off. I saw it through. I graduated. I, and I went on to do the things that I always wanted to do, like score a film, right. tap dance in New York, had the opportunity to start a school for you know underserved children so they can learn performing arts and that is creative we talk about purpose my purpose comes through the form of creativity very much yeah yeah and this intertwined process that you underwent with regard to your recovery specifically, but also then at the same time recovering your connection to art, you're recovering your connection to a God of your understanding, and you're recovering a connection to yourself, yeah. all in the context of doing this work that's really foundational to all of it in the 12 steps mm -hmm. and then adding things like gratitude practices and meditation practices and being able to bring those into your artistic expression is such a beautiful manifestation of what recovery can really be. And the gratitude, how that changed, how that was so helpful a lot was when I started to feel something lacking was to turn that into okay, well, I lack music. I'm grateful I have these other outlets. Yeah. I feel so lonely. 
I'm grateful I have, you know, these relationships coming back. I have, you know, I turning like, what am I lacking? Instead of focusing on what I'm lacking, what is it, it that I have within that same area? Right. I'm, 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 I feel like I'm lacking the income that I need. Well, I'm grateful that I have food. I'm grateful I have a warm place. Let's just be grateful for that right now. Worry about the, the, you know, the rest of it later. Um, that's where gratitude really, that's what it's, that's for me what was healing about it is when I let, when I feel lack, turn it around and what is it that I have? One of the other beautiful parallels about your journey is that once you worked through the 12 steps in order with a sponsor, once you embarked and progressed on your artistic reconnection journey, you reached a point where integral in both of those journeys was giving back. Mm. And there's so much purpose in that. Yeah. So we I mean, talk we, about purpose of big P and little P and that they're connected, right? Yeah. But using and being able to bring the full weight and power of your experience all the way up into that point, both from an artistic, having it, losing it, having it, sobriety, having it, losing it, having it, and then being able to bring the full power of that experience to help others. Yeah, that's, you know, it's, it's, we hear often in the rooms, you can only keep what we have by giving it away. Um, it's, there's not a lot of people who, you know, I kind of, I kind of made this path on my own using the steps and so forth, it gives me so much joy and it's very humbling. I mean, so when I started performing again, people would, you know, I was going through a lot of stuff and it didn't always feel good inside. Mm -hmm. You know, even there was this joy of recovering, but at the same time, there's this grieving of who I used to be. And, um, you know, so, but as I'm going through this process, um, people would start to see me perform and they would say, Skip, you're such a light. You're such a light. Your light just shines when you're up there on stage. And I mean, oh my God, if you only knew what's going on inside, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? But it's that process of, it is that process of us exploring and working through that shit and through that darkness that our light starts to shine and it's it's inside out right and i don't always notice the work that's going on inside um until i i, I love this example because when i i told you earlier i was 230 pounds 
And um, I went to grad school and um, I had to live off, I think it was $1,100 a month Yeah, right, in Miami. <laughs> and, um, so uh, I didn't starve myself to death, but I had the choice of like, you only have this much money for groceries every month. Right. You can either buy crap food or, you know, so I learned to like, budget um not only the money but the food like everything had to count yeah right and I, do am i gonna spend this on empty calories or, or right. am i gonna spend it on something that's gonna keep me full for a while right yeah. absolutely absolutely um so over the course of that year um by eating healthy and you know i started riding my bike it was miami i lost 50 pounds and you know you go through I knew like, oh, I don't need to wear this um, double X shirt anymore. Oh, I, right. I now, oh, I now I'm down to a, a size large. Um, oh wow, I'm down to. I think there was a point I was in a medium, and so, but looking in the mirror every day, you don't see this. There's certain things you recognize. Oh, I need a new belt. There was a day that I was showing. It was, uh, I moved to Miami in August of 2008. In August of 2009, I was talking to someone and I'm going through my phone and just showing them pictures over the last year, you know, kind of going backwards. And I got to a picture of 2008, August. I'm like, holy crap, <laughs> yeah. who is that guy? I, I mean, it was just, you know, so I see it as we don't always see the small changes that are going on until we get a snapshot of of you know who we used to be and that works psychologically too and 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 you know i i there was a time when i was having an uh, i thought i was having an argument with my mom and my sister i left the room because i learned in recovery i don't have to participate right i can leave the room i left the room i went and took a nap and i came back and i was like mom i'm really sorry for the way i talked to you earlier and she's like what are you talking about you didn't even say anything and in my mind, I was yeah. having the argument, but it wasn't until she said that, that I realized, oh, I've changed. That part of me has changed. So, um, you know, these small changes over time, just like the small beliefs, the, the small decisions that we make about our beliefs, they start to show up in small ways that we don't see every day. Yeah. And then they start to show up. We start to get to reflect. It's such an instructive way to describe the process of recovery. And then ultimately being able to lean into our gifts, talents, skills, and abilities because we're continuing to do the work that we need to do on a daily basis in order to stay well and continue to grow and one of the things that you're doing which i love is the creative purpose project yeah and that project has a tremendous mission attached to it help 10,000 musicians share their light and hope of recovery through 10,000 recordings and 10 thousand performances by the year 2030 
that's pretty great. Yeah. It's, you know, if, if you're got to do it, do it big. Right. (laughs) If I said a hundred musicians, that's too easy. Right. You know, I I need, I need the big goals. Go big or go home. And that's that's right. Isn't that just so intrinsic in many of us in terms of we're either all in or all out. Right. Yep. Yep. But it's, so those, I, those little things that I was sharing with you before, also those little improvements help me with my creative journey mm. and my creative journey, how it helped. And there are not a lot of people. There's Julia Cameron, who has the artist way, who has her uh, work based upon 12 steps. Um, but there's not a lot of people doing this i had her i didn't know of anyone else so mm-hmm. it's like i see someplace i can be of service because there's not a lot of people doing this specifically yeah. right yeah to like how do you apply your recovery to your creative abilities if that's what you want to do not everybody wants to do that right but there are people who want to do it and who are trying to figure it out on their own. And I'm like, I've got, I've got 17 years of experience of doing this and figuring this out of this path that if I can help you do it and save you some time and help you get there a little quicker or a lot quicker, then by all means, that's what I need to do. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, Charles, I fought this. I fought this. Um, I knew it was my purpose. I knew it was my mission. I could feel it. I could feel the calling, but I didn't feel worthy. Mm-hmm. I still deal with that. That is still comes up, but I'm like, who, who am I to say that I'm going to coach someone else and take money for it? Right. That I'm that good that I'm that professional when, you know, I'm, you know, it's, it's, I'm, what do they call it? Imposter syndrome. Totally. Right. I don't have any gold records. I don't have, you know, um, none of the films that I've done have like won great awards or anything. People don't even know some of the, so who am I to tell somebody else how to do this? And, it's really not, first of all, I'm not telling. I'm just helping people to go through their process so they can reveal to themselves what their creativity is supposed to be. And I can use those tools that I've had to share with them to help them do it. It's really more about helping other people unlock that in themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's only time it's going to be true. Yeah. It's the only time I could instruct someone what to do, but if they don't come up with it themselves, they're going to do that and they're going to forget it. Yep. It's just like when I got in recovery this last time, I did it because I wanted to live. I didn't do it to save a relationship or a job or a career. I did it because I wanted to live and it stuck. And that's how, that's how it is when I coach someone. It's like, let's find out what is your purpose. Yeah. And 
what is your purpose? That's where I start out. What is your purpose for wanting to create? Mm. And maybe you don't know, but let's start to experiment with that because when you hit the writer's block, what's your purpose for wanting to write? Because that's how you're going to get through it. Your ego is going to tell you you're not worthy. Yeah. It's not that good. Yeah. What you don't have a story to tell. And that's, yeah. that's writer's block right there. But when you know your purpose, that's what's going to, that's what's going to push it through. Can I tell you, I'm, I'm going to walk you through one of the exercises I do. Please. Are, are you willing to be vulnerable for a moment? I am. Okay. Think about, um, think about, uh, three things that you felt you did not receive growing up. Mm. Things you felt you were, you're, whoever brought you up, they, they did not give to you. Okay. Do you see any correlation? Um, yeah, I do. So guidance, attention, and validation were the things that came to my mind in terms of things that I felt at times I didn't get Yeah, yeah. growing up. And then I chose what the, the three things I chose to give to the world is love, story, and... I say that because I think that is such a powerful way for us as humans to connect, to learn, to grow, to heal is through the power of story. It's absolutely it's absolutely what I'm doing here on this podcast. Yeah. Is using story to connect and to heal Guidance and validation. A hundred percent. And the uh, the last piece was inspiration. Inspire people to believe that they too can get better. They too can recover. Yeah. And go on to inspire and help other people. So it's it's that's like a very simple beginning, but you even said it yourself. This is the reason you're doing your podcast. Yes. Right? And it's these things that it's turning our stories from what we lack and discovering that's often what we want to give. Mm. So we do have those things we think we lack. Well, and it's interesting you say that, Skip, because I lacked agency over my story prior to recovery. Mm -hmm. Things happened to me. Yeah. I was a victim of other people and of circumstances that I felt like were out of my control. I was a victim of my addiction. I was a victim of toxic relationships. I was a victim and I didn't have agency over my story and I didn't have a direction in my life. All of that was lacking and then entering recovery, I began to take agency over my story 
and the hero's journey I think about. And they talk about that in film and they talk about that in books and in any story reckoning with your kryptonite, your weaknesses. Being able to say, these things happened to me, but now I see they happened for me. Yes. So that I can take them and use my experience to help others through it. And that becomes my superpower. Yeah. So instead of it being my kryptonite, I'm able to turn that into my superpower. That is also the yes. And that's also the part where realizing and accepting our part in it, right? Yeah. Like, I didn't abandon my music. I didn't, my music didn't abandon me. I abandoned my music, right? So there's, that's the other, that, you know, it, this happened to me. Now I see it happened for me. Yeah. That was taken away from me. Now I see it wasn't taken away. I left it. Yeah. All of it is about accepting responsibility and claiming the responsibility for it oh, now, yeah. now claiming responsibility for it. Now, some of those things, you know, like the way I was sexually assaulted and I got HIV. My accepting responsibility for that today is I was high and I was hanging out with people I knew were not trustworthy. Yeah. Doesn't take away anything of the wrongdoing of Absolutely. what he did. Yeah. But it allows me to take my story. And the big part of that is it allows me to forgive myself. Yeah. And then I can take this experience as hard as it is to talk about sometimes, but I, I can take that experience and be empathetic with others who are going through the same thing or others. And I understand, and I can help through that in the way that I'm available to at that moment or they need at that moment. And that is such a beautiful representation of what recovery can do for us is be able to get to a point with some of these really difficult experiences that we have and afford ourselves self-forgiveness, grace, and be able to use our collective experience to be able to extend that to other people and be that example, that all important example for somebody else mm -hmm. that they too can get through these really difficult experiences and they too can recover and they too can reconnect to their artistic abilities and be able to harness them in a way perhaps they've never been able to before and use them in a way to be of service 
I love that. Yes. And that perhaps is the most gratifying of all. Yeah. Skip, we have some closing questions. Are you ready? Yes. What does your daily or regular recovery routine consist of? My daily recovery consists of answering the phone when my sponsees call. That is, there are times I don't want to answer the phone, but I love them and I'm there for them. Um, going to, I don't go to a meeting every day. I have a home group. You know, I go, I go through meetings, but if I need a meeting, I do it. I call my sponsor. Um, I call him about once a week to have a, a check-in. I read the, um, the uh, Just For Today. It comes in every morning on my, on my uh, email. And I um, am being of service in my job, you know, even even uh, reaching out on Facebook in the ways that I do marketing. Um, I'm reaching out and being of service to people. That's beautiful. I heard service. I heard connection. I heard Quitlet. I'm such a recovery tool nerd that it's those daily things that yeah. really ground me. And really center me on a daily basis. And the longer I'm in recovery, the more I realize that it's today. What am I doing today? Yeah. In order to stay well, stay connected, mind, body, and spirit. The one that is not in there, comes and goes, is I don't have a daily meditation routine right now. Um. The la- well, the last one I had was yoga, and I'm not allowed to do that right now because of physical stuff. I didn't replace it. Right. Um, but there are times I get into meditation practice, then I get bored with it. Yeah. Right? And that's okay. Yeah. You know, you got to find a new one. Yeah. Uh, bike riding season's coming up. Bike riding is a form of meditation for me until oh, yeah. somebody, until a car pulls out in front of me and then it's <laughs> instantly not meditation. Not meditation. <laughs> Tap dancing was a form of meditation for me for a while. Um, yeah, walking for me. I walk every day. That's yeah. yes. You can move and meditate at the same time. Yeah. I don't have a intentional meditation practice at the moment, but um just I'm full disclosure love putting it. that out there. Yeah, no, I love it. <laughs> Skip, what book or piece of recovery literature had the biggest impact on your recovery? Um, the first one was a book, uh, um, by Jack Campbell called the success principles. And it was, it's about seven or 800 pages long and it's like different exercise, but that book got me in the frame of mind of changing my thoughts and how to, you know, it's not recovery related, but yeah, it is. It's recovery. But it is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and that's a first for us. So that's great. The uh, four agreements, Don Miguel Ruiz really helped me to like make it so freaking simple. And it also helped me understand about 
letting go of the God of my misunderstanding, mm. the religion of my origin, understanding that where that comes from and how it plays a part in my life and being able to, that book really helped. And then the third one I would say is uh, The Power of Now. That one, that one is like the graduate school of um, meditation, but yeah. that really helped me understand of like, how to be how to get how to get centered even when the the car alarm is going off next yeah. to you right right yeah. right it's not the absence of distractions or noise or any of that it's mm -hmm. being able to be calm in it mm -hmm. that's why i like to call it a medication practice because we practice it for when we need it for real and i and, and and because we're not perfect at it yeah i'm a huge believer in that idea of practice i have a lot of practices in recovery and they're practices because i'm not perfect at them yeah yeah what is the best piece of advice you've received in recovery thus far wait 48 hours before you react Ooh, I like it. Wait 48 hours before you react. Just because somebody pushes our button doesn't mean we have to respond right away. Just because somebody is demanding our attention doesn't mean we have to give it right away. And if I think I'm going to react in a way, if I'm feeling that I'm going to react in a way that is not in a line with the spiritual principles that I'm trying to practice, that is, there we go. That is a time where I can use that practice um, and just wait 48 hours. Which can seem like an eternity, depending on the situation. <laughs> but during that time, you're going to think it through. Yeah. You're going to have time to think it through. You're going to pray about it. You're going to talk to some other people about it. Um, and, you know, through that process, you'll have a better understanding of what is the way I can, um, to deal with this, maybe not even react, but yeah. what is the best way that I can deal with this in a way that is going to be healthy and in alignment with my spiritual tools of recovery and not going to lead me back to, um, thoughts that are going to put me in that position of, um, self-hatred, you know, acting in a way that, oh my God, why did I do that? I love that because the practice of the pause is a powerful way for me in my life to be able to more consistently act and behave in a way that's consistent with the person I'm trying to become. And to your point, often that means I don't do anything. So I used to think I always had to do something. Like I always had to, it always required a response. Doing nothing is doing something. That's it. <laughs> and often that's the case, Skip. Like it doesn't require anything of me. I don't need to insert myself into the situation 
the best thing often I can do is not do anything and turn my attention to myself and what can I do in order to be the best example of recovery I can be. Let go. Forgive. Those kinds of things which are really internal practices are often the things I need to do in a given situation, which is not an external outward outward facing action. And I need the space and the time often to recognize that Mm -hmm. instead of acting on that impulse, I need to respond. I need to react. And as we said earlier, if you have to do an impulse, use it a different way. Yes. Instead of right thing. Instead of texting, just because somebody texts you something nasty doesn't mean you have to text them back. That's it. Text your sponsor. Text yes. A friend. Yes. Text a friend and tell, you know, this was this is um the sponsor who told me the 48 hours. Uh she said if you feel like impulsively texting this person back, text it to me. Of that. And I'll know it's I'll know it's not towards me, <laughs> but you have to get it out there. Just text it to me. I love it. That's great. Oh, that's great. That's beautiful. Skip, what is the greatest challenge you've had in recovery thus far? When Mike died. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, we were partners for many years. We separated, got back together. We separated, got back together. Then we separated again. Um, We were always best friends. Uh, 2014. He passed away from uh, alcoholism. Oh, wow. That was, yeah. Yeah. That grieving experience was like nothing I've ever, you know. Thank God I had the rooms. Yeah. And some tools by that time. Yeah. What a gift in such a difficult time. Yeah. The flip side of that is what is your greatest success in recovery to this point? My greatest success is, um, oh my God, how many days? 17 years, daily miracles. <laughs> yeah, for real. I mean, you know, I could, I could say um, getting my master's degree, yeah. scoring a film, winning an award for that, starting the school. None of those would have been possible if I didn't stay clean one day at a time. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful. I love that answer. The next one is a doozy, and then we end with a fun one. All right. What is something you haven't forgiven yourself or someone else for? I still have thoughts about Actions I did before recovery um, that even though, for example, I, I used to manage a, um, <laughs> I'm such a dick. Let's see. <laughs> I, it's, I used to manage a gift shop. Okay. 
and we got these security cameras installed and uh this person came in once and i said they didn't do anything i just wanted to be a dick so i told him i said we got those cameras right there i saw you put your hands in your pocket empty your pockets like <laughs> i was a there was you were just you were just fucking with him yeah i was just okay. fucking with them <laughs> and i still look back on that and i'm like my god what kind of that was just a horrible right. thing to do and so yeah. i i still like i, I told i totally get that and I'm there are little that. things like that that like why why are those things the things that i remember because they're the things i need to remember absolutely because so, um, they're a representation of who you don't want to be who i don't want to be yeah i totally get that a hundred percent so yeah thanks for bringing that up because i, I <laughs> you know what i do that's I don't think I've ever looked at it that way. Actually, I need to remember that. That's why I keep remembering. That's it. So that's forgive myself and just remember that's who you. You're not accusatory anymore. You hate being accused, so yes. don't be accusatory. Right. Yes. And remember that's. Don't be a dick. <laughs> don't be a dick. I love it. Here's the fun one. What song symbolizes recovery to you? A song that you probably never heard of, and most people in America have not, because it's um, a song by Mario Frangoulis. Uh, he's Greek, and it's called Beautiful Things. And if you listen to those words, it's like, it it is just so, so recovery. It starts out like, it starts out about how, um, wanting to you know wanting to end it all right not feeling worthy um but i remember the beautiful things and the chorus is um your god is a beautiful thing our bodies are beautiful things um our song is a beautiful thing and then um it ends on um the last words of the song are i want to be better than i was yesterday oh yeah so mario frangoulis beautiful things you can find it on youtube check the show notes right now for a handy link to mario frangoulis beautiful things as well as skip's quit lit recommendations and his best piece of recovery advice and skip sam's contact info is in the show notes so check that as well all of that handy information is all in the show notes. Check it out. Anyone who um, writes to me, go to skipsams.com or skipsamscoaching.com. Send me a message or text me. Anybody who lets me know that they heard this interview, they'll get a free coaching session about exploring their creativity. Yeah, I love that. That's awesome. A great great thing i feel like just that little piece that we did was really cool so you know if that's just a taste of the exercises that are embedded in your coaching i think it's really great yeah awesome and skip thank you so much brother for sharing your journey to and through recovery to this point and all the amazing things you're doing in recovery this has been amazing 
It's been a lot of fun. This has been one of the funnest podcast interviews I've done in quite a while. So thank you. You're a great interviewer, by the way. Thanks, Skip. I'm working on accepting the praise. So thank you. Charles, your light shines when you do these interviews. Your light is shining. People cannot see it <laughs> like I can on the screen, but your light is shining. Thank you, brother. I really appreciate it. And thank you, everybody out there in Way Out Podcast land for your ears. We will talk to you next time. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast.com all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to The Way Out Podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time, and remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.